This is a Federal News Network podcast. One of the great open secrets of the cybersecurity domain is how much mischief is done by Russia and its government-sponsored hackers. Countering Russia cyber activity takes a lot of effort on the part of the United States and U.S. companies. My next guest has studied Russia's cyber war activities in detail. He says the more you know about Russia's motivations, the better you can counteract it. Nate Beach-Westmoreland is head of strategic cyber threat intelligence at Booz Allen Hamilton, and he joins me now. Mr. Beach-Westmoreland, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Nice to meet you. Tell us the object of the study and what was your methodology in trying to learn what's in the minds of Russian hackers? So uh, the the study basically starts with the concept that uh, we, we knew that Russia... It, you know, Russia's military intelligence agency, GRU, is a government agency, and government agencies have a mission, and they have sort of a vision of how they do things. So it was a matter of determining, has, has the Russia's military intelligence agency put out something that says, this is our mission and how we are going to do things? We identified that in a public document called the Russian Military Doctrine, and then use that as a lens through which we could look at 15 years of Russian cyber operations. And that's one of the biggest surprises of all, is that it's not even a secret that they, just as we publish a military doctrine in the Quadrennial Defense Review and so on publicly for anyone to read, I was really surprised to learn that Russia doesn't make any bones about what their plans and aims and strategies are militarily. Well, yeah, that's really important from a military uh, standpoint that you want to reduce the amount of uncertainty in, ter- in international relations. Uh, so it's at least on a high level, it's important that other countries understand what are your intentions and how are you going to act in the world? So there just isn't surprise, at least in the big picture. The idea is if people know exactly what we can do and what we'll do, the potential enemies won't try anything. Precisely. You want to communicate what are your red lines and what sort of costs you may impose upon someone if they cross those red lines. We've seen Russia impose costs on Crimea, and I guess it's been happening to some degree in the whole Ukraine situation. And mm-hmm. frankly, in the United States, even though we're not you know, at war or in threat of invasion by Russia or vice versa. So tell us more of what you learned by connecting activities with this published doctrine. Uh, so the doctrine at a very high level explains what is the GRU's mission. It is to, uh, you know, to track national security challenges and where necessary to mitigate them. Those national security challenges are enumerated as a bunch of conditions that may create a conflict, such as the expansion of NATO, the uh, establishment of hostile states near Russia, uh, undermining of Russia's historical values. And then it talks about sort of circumstances that may lead directly to a conflict, uh, deterioration of interstate relations and so forth. So a problem exists and the GRU therefore has to respond to it. It needs to, at a minimum, track that that situation. And if it rises to the occasion, respond to it. All right. Given the activity that has been, say, directed at the United States, it doesn't seem like the United States meets any of those criteria for action, and yet there has been hacking directed this way, sourced in Russia. Well, with the United States, you know, the sorts of attacks that we've seen have not been, say, turning off the lights in the United States. What it's been has, uh, you know, we've seen 
for example, in the political arena, we had the 2016 election, which was actually a very similar situation to what happened in France in their 2017 election, where there was a candidate that Russia perceived as being perhaps incompatible with its worldview. And uh, therefore, there was a need to mitigate that threat, even if not by, say, changing the election outcome, but, say, weakening the uh, credibility of that candidate. And so now that we have a little bit more of a potential situation with Russia going on now, and we have troops moving, again, not next to Russia, but kind of one country offset, but it's clear to them and it's overtly stated by us that there will be consequences to whatever actions they decide to take in Ukraine. So what can we expect based on this analysis? What might Russia's likely response be to the United States, let's say? Yeah, so it really, I think, will depend on the precise nature of uh, the U.S. response to whatever may unfold in Ukraine in the coming weeks or months. Um, So, for example, if there were sanctions to appear, Based on what we've seen in Russia, it would be sort of a tit for tat sort of situation, most likely, where uh, you know you, Ukraine bro- uh, breached a energy deal with Russia, and therefore you, Russia came after the energy and financial sectors of Ukraine. We're speaking with Nate Beach Westmoreland. He's head of strategic cyber threat intelligence at Booz Allen Hamilton. In the case of the United States, we have a cyber command, and they don't, they're they kind of cagey about what offensive capabilities they have or the doctrine under which they would use them, and they talk about their defenses. It sounds like Russia is more overt about using cyber as a non-lethal type of offensive part of their arsenal. Fair way to put it? Uh, yes, the, the the Russians have published doctrine going back uh, 20 years, if not doctrine always, but at least strategic writings talking about what is the importance of cyber and information operations more generally to national security. So in Russia, for the past 20 years, they've talked about cyber as being part of an information confrontation, informazione protivoborzva, the control of the information environment, where, you know, in the United States, we talk, when we talk about, will Russia do something in cyber? Will there be a cyber attack? It's often in the sense of, you know, turning off the lights, but that's much more of a tactical measure, whereas Russia, at least in its strategy, is more concerned about how does it impact the information environment, the psychological environment. Right. So the information environment to them is more than the cyber digital information technology systems, but yeah. the but what they can produce in terms of maybe fear and anxiety in the target population. Creating that sort of situation, but also simply creating an information environment more conducive to Russian interests. So that would be like we're talking about the election examples. It's the uh a decreasing confidence in democratic systems, decreasing the legitimacy of elections makes it harder for those heads of state to, say, mount a unified response to a Russian n- national security policy. And you outlined several conditions, several case studies, rather, of actual events in the world and tied them with cyber. So it's fair to say, for example, when Montenegro joined NATO in 2016-2017, airstrikes against ISIL, ISIL in 2014 back then, 
There's here's Poland seeks local construction of new foreign-led military bases, again, 14 through 18 time period. These were all accompanied by cyber activities from Russia in reaction. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the There's a, a great degree of reactionary uh, nature to Russian cyber operations. We have this great quote in our report where... Vladimir Putin says to a group of onlookers, you know, this is what I can say about the attack of words, the, the about cyber attacks or the war of words in the press and other issues. Action always causes reaction, always. And so, uh, so many of these operations that we see are uh, highly reactionary. Uh, they may be set up in advance, but actually pulling the trigger waits for some precipitating event. Sounds like they're better chess players than maybe some of the other Western nations, including us. Well, who knows what the, uh, you know, being able to see what's actually going on on the U.S. side. As, you know, of course, I just track what's going on in Russia. Right. Would it be fair to say, though, that the ability to counter what Russia does in cyberspace is more than just a function of our cyber operators, but it really takes intelligence and policy in the whole of government to counteract this? Absolutely. It's a much more uh, holistic uh, threat that we are facing, I suppose you could call it that. And so therefore, you need a much more holistic response to that threat. Interesting report. Nate Beach-Westmoreland is head of strategic cyber threat intelligence at Booz Allen Hamilton. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.